Welcome back to Writing the Rapids. I'm your host, Joe Blackie. On this episode, we talked to John Treffery of Inside the Castle. He's written a couple books, and he is an architect, and he's a very interesting guy. As always, I will invite you to become a patron, patreon.com slash WTR. If you want to do that, it just helps me buy books and helps episodes come faster and perhaps in the future with greater frequency. If that's not something you want to do, podcasts are free for a reason. Without further ado, let's get into the episode proper. I guess if someone doesn't know what Inside the Castle is, because you are the head honcho there, uh, give a brief overview of what one might expect from buying an Inside the Castle book. Well, it's a, I guess you would describe it as a small press. I don't know like what the actual hierarchical strata of micro press, small press, indie press, whatever, but it's pretty small. Uh, It's just me uh, doing as much as I possibly can. So I do all the reading of submissions and we have open submissions. So I get a lot of stuff um and i read it all myself very slowly how much is a lot uh i mean i probably have 150 things in my queue right now really wow yeah i mean some people just you know they should not be submitting Mm -hmm. to me like they they clearly have not done much homework but uh, i guess to to describe what the press is or what its mission statement is might explain why I get so much stuff. And what I look for is work that doesn't really fit in the conventional, respectable narrative tradition of contemporary writing. And even things that, you know, a lot of the alt lit stuff or, or what people might describe as like weird fiction even that is is often really narrative based, um, whether it's a narrative of someone's making, which might be like the weird fiction stuff, or a narrative about someone's life and experiences, which might be more in the alt lit stuff. Um, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for stuff that exploits the fact that a book is a book and not a podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or like, a, an oral reading uh, in person or a conversation or anything like that. A book is a collection of words that functions just vastly differently than uh, regular speech does. And I think that the reason I get so much stuff is because there's not really a comfortable and consistent home for that kind of work in uh, the small publishing universe. There's certainly publishers who have releases here and there that fit into that um, kind of framework. But I think that people are doing that kind of work. There's just not anywhere to put it. So I get a lot of stuff sent to me and there's so much good work uh, that I would really love to publish more. Uh, But again, it's just me and 
I don't have money to put into it. Yeah. So uh, it's very like razor thin margins that I'm working with. And um, yeah, so I guess that's kind of the press in a nutshell. I, I'm releasing, uh, I released nine books this year and have, I think, seven uh, planned for next year. And I think that's probably kind of the range that I'm going to be sticking with. I find that really impressive picture. for a one person operation. Yeah, it's a it's a good bit of work. <laughs> uh, I mean, luckily, that's got to be like all you read, right? Like how much stuff do you read that's not submitted to you at this point? Not a lot, sadly. I mean, I... I read in bed at night. Um, that's where I read like my personal stuff or like for, for pleasure, I guess you would say. Um, and then I read for my own writing, like just research stuff and usually do that in the morning. Um, so yeah, the rest of the day, I guess, fit in between my actual job as working on inside the castle stuff. So there's, I mean, and, and part of the reason I think that people who submit stuff to me might find it annoying is because it takes me a really long time to get to them. And I like to respond to everybody uh, and let them know that I got the thing. And then once I've had a chance to look at it, let them know, obviously, if I'm not going to be able to publish it, I'll let them know that that's the case, but also let them know kind of what my findings were about it so it takes a long time but i i like to uh i guess be amenable to people who are putting themselves out there because i've sent my work out to a lot of presses and just you know never even got a confirmation of receipt uh i've sent stuff to places that were having like competition readings or something like that and then we never even hear back from them and see that they had announced a winner and you know shitty shitty stuff like that that's just so sloppy and and rude i just try my best to avoid that kind of behavior but it ends up taking a lot longer than yeah. normal yeah i i um and i'm gonna sing this song i think until the day i die but <laughs> it, it it seems like uh, prose and poets, prose writers and poets are the last artists on earth who are willing to work for free. And, uh, yeah. like even beyond that, willing to just treat presses like you are applying for jobs where it's, oh, it's yeah. been six months and I've heard nothing. I guess that's a no. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I appreciate you know, as a person who hasn't sent anything to you, I appreciate your work <laughs> ethic with that. I don't know. Your Inside the Castle is an interesting press for me because it's a press that I'm very interested in. I'm interested in the work that you've put out. And from what I've read of Inside the Castle so far, I really like it. But it's also like not the writing that I do. And so it would be, oh, yeah. it would be a really big challenge to try to write something for your press and i'd probably need to buy two or three four or five more books <laughs> to really really get a handle on it because reading um 
I can't remember if I said this before or after we started the interview proper, but I, I got Platts, which is the book that you wrote uh, and started the press for. Right, yeah. And Lonely Men Club, which is part of the Castle Freak residency, which uh, I feel like is... How, how similar or different is that book from the other things that you've published? Uh, cast, uh, the, the Lonely Men Club? Yes. Um, I would say that every book that I've published so far is, is really different. And that's mm. been kind of a goal of mine. Like, I, I don't mean this to sound really vain, but I really love my own writing. Like I have, I, I started writing, uh, I guess in 2000. I mean, I started writing when I was in college, but like as far as my dedication to it in about 2000 and finished Platts in 2008 and didn't publish it till, 2014 and so I, I feel like I've been developing my interest outside of the community of writers and contemporary literature for a long time until I finally figured out that there were actually people on the internet who <laughs> were mm -hmm. similar to me so I've, I feel like my my impressions of my own work are kind of in a vacuum that I really care about and I, once I started meeting other people, I started to realize that there were people who were doing work that was conceptually similar to mine, but the voice was incredibly different. So that is kind of what I would describe the Inside the Castle catalog as, as a variety of people who share similar um, goals in their work. Uh, basically what I was describing before about the kind of mission of the press, uh, but they all do it with their own personal voice. So uh, Noor El Samari's uh, El Cerrito is a book that's like the prose in it is nothing like my book or Lonely Men Club or anything like that. It's her own, you know, very, very, very personal voice and it's actually a very personal book but the structure of the book and the approach uh conceptually really fits the press so i think that it's kind of exciting for me because i'm always looking for things that that i might actually not have picked up and read myself because they didn't strike me as you know my own voice and taste but they have kind of taught me a lot about what's possible in this kind of writing and open it up for me a lot to see the breadth and try to incorporate the breadth of all this kind of writing into uh, the press's catalog. So I would say that you would find a really, really wide assortment of stuff from, you know, pretty, uh, lineated poetry kind of work like Joanna Novak's book I think is probably the most I, I hate to say conventional but like recognizably <laughs> poetry based work that I've published but the the strategy underlying it was incredibly complicated and uh, fascinating I think it produced something that was kind of like 
eerie and clunky and beautiful in a certain way. Um, and then, yeah, Lonely Men Club. I mean, Mike Klein wrote that on a computer, like with using a computer software to generate the text, basically. So it's way out there in its own kind of conceptual underpinnings. For sure. For sure. Uh, I guess if you want to talk a little bit more about Castle Freak sort of in general, uh, that might be helpful for people who aren't familiar. Okay. Um, well, it was something that I started, um, I guess it was last, last year, um, 2017 and I called it a remote residency. Um, because it's something that you, I guess it's like a staycation <laughs> for writing, like you do it from your home. But um, I started it because the the process, which is basically dig digitally generative literature, is something that I'm really interested in, but something that I don't have the technical capability to do myself. And I tried a few kind of really basic tools. Like I tried to write a book in Microsoft Excel at one point and, hmm. you know, just like <laughs> stupid stuff that someone who doesn't have any knowledge would try to do. Um, but so I started this remote residency uh, as a way to see how this kind of digitally generated literature could fit into the bigger picture of what Inside the Castle is doing, which is looking for a bunch of different voices uh, in the way they express this, this bookness of books. And I think that computers and uh, computer learning and artificial intelligence and coding and all that is a voice and that it should be explored. Uh, so the the prompt for Castle Freak is uh, really simple. It's that you have to write a 100,000 word book in five days. And basically I, I said it was 100,000 words because I knew that was nearly impossible to do without uh, computer assistance. Uh, I have had proposals for it that like someone's like, yeah, dude, I can write super fucking fast. And I'm like, okay, he obviously didn't read what this is about. It's not about, you know, hauling ass. It's about programming or coding uh, a, some kind of program that will write the book for you. So yeah, Mike Klein was the first one who did the residency he did it last uh november i think like over thanksgiving break um and it seemed like it kicked the shit out of him it like, really does <laughs> yeah you would think that like oh you've got this 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 process is such that you just you know press a button and you know get in bed for five days but i i'm I'm saying this like completely ignorant of how it actually works. It didn't seem like that's how it worked. Like he, he seemed like he was like sleeping for an hour, then staying up for six hours and just like, 
it sounded nightmarish, but in a, you know, really rewarding kind of way. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think it, it reminded me of this like safe, tortured artist sort of experience where you could sort of <laughs> be that manic person, but for less than mm-hmm. a week and then leave it alone and continue being a normal person because we do romanticize (laughs) that that tortured artist like oh god he just did cocaine for six days and wrote (laughs) so much so much books um i i also wonder if some of that was because of how he designed the book i want to have him back on the show and and really like what was step one what was step two as much as he's willing to say and because it seems like a lot of the generative stuff probably did happen quickly and then the mm-hmm. organizing was what took him a yeah. long time um i have to say about him like i know you had him on here um he is he's probably the most professional person i've worked with like and i have not i i kind of one of my sorting methods for uh looking at people's proposals is what they send to me like as a cover letter or whatever because i've gotten like a lot that say go dog like check out this fucking crazy book Mm -hmm. and or i get things that are there is nothing like the body of the email is blank and there's a word doc attached to it god and that that doesn't like instill a lot of confidence in me or like optimism for what the process of working with that person is going to be like but mike is he he is is and was so professional and like would ask for deadlines and feedback you know about various processes and it was just like incredible to to oversee him working and to just uh kind of learn from him and also just like get energized by his professionalism for sure. Uh, we, I had somebody else on who described him as very, very thorough, which mm-hmm. I think professionalism and, and thoroughness are, are two very, very uh, apt things to say about him. Um, there was this, I, I heard, oh, just uh, go real ahead. quick, that reminded me of uh, this thing I heard about Stanley Kubrick once that he was like that. And like, I guess his he was worried that his cat was had a kidney problem or a urinary tract infection or something so his vet asked him to monitor how much water the cat was drinking and he like actually counted the number of licks the cat was taking (laughs) from his water bowl that's like my climb yeah that's that's a mindset that i'm fascinated (laughs) by uh speaking of really wanting to get into like how the book was written with your book Platts, I noticed pretty quickly that there were no chapters um, and that there were three pretty equally sized paragraphs on each page. Mm-hmm. Did you have parameters for yourself and how did you come up with them and then keep them? Uh, this was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I think I started writing in 2000. Um, and when I started, it was, it was right after I had moved away from Los Angeles and kind of, you know, I had moved back to Atlanta and 
was kind of trying to re reconstruct Los Angeles for myself in a sense, because my time living there was really um, kind of jacked up by being in grad school and a pretty grueling grad school experience. So the writing kind of started out rebuilding the city for myself, but also like through the lens of how dissociated I felt um, during my time there because of what my lifestyle was like and everything. Mm. Um, and so it just started out kind of, you know, thinking about this disembodiment and dissociation in relation to the city and being an architect, like really fixated on the way the composition of the city, its morphology and the architecture of the city kind of create your body for you when you're engaging with it. Um, and did, you know, a lot of writing just kind of uh, automatic kind of writing and uh, descriptive stuff in relation to that little project. Um, but then, you know, was struggling for how it would work, like as an organization. And I think it was pretty early on. It took me like seven years to write the book. I think within the first year and a half, I had that that structure kind of sketched out. And it had to do with um, each leaf of the the spread is three paragraphs like you said each one's 11 lines mm. um they're not the same number of characters or words or anything it's just lines okay uh and the top two have to do with venice boulevard the middle two have to do with idaho uh i don't remember what's boulevard or avenue and the bottom one has to do with sepulveda boulevard which are all uh, thoroughfares in Los Angeles and I kind of saw them as like escape routes uh, both in terms of their place on the map but also in terms of the place name so each one like is kind of an escape into this world as described by the name so the top two paragraphs Venice Boulevard have like lots of Venetian imagery and uh, things like that and and so on down the page. And then I think the left-hand page is uh, nighttime and the right-hand page is daytime. Hmm. So that's kind of how it's organized. And it gave me like these uh, plats basically to write. And so I would write one whole uh, sequence uh, by itself. So I'd write the the upper left Venice at night sequence all the way through. And then uh, I think I wrote the two, the top two uh, together and then kind of broke them up into components and then wrote the next two. And slowly I started to have like this friction uh, amassed between the plats that once I I guess I'd written like three or four of them the last two down at the bottom the Sepulveda one started 
kind of reacting more to what was going on that had already been written. Uh, so it wasn't as automatic or generative as, as the first few were. But the structure kind of evolved and, and gave me like a way to house these different narratives, I guess. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm at a loss. I find that, that while I read it, uh, oftentimes I'll read sections of books out loud to my wife, uh, Mm. And and she'll do the same for me with whatever she's reading, and it's a good way to sort of gauge what the other person's experiencing because our taste in books is probably the most um, disparate thing about us. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm reading your your book and like some Clive Barker stuff right now, and she's reading nice. um, Jody Picoult and um, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina comic books. And so, so kind of bouncing back and forth is interesting, but what I was describing to her last night is, uh, reading Platt's makes me kind of think about how people describe why time slows down when you're on psychedelics, um, because your brain starts thinking more thoughts per unit of time than you're used to. So... Mm -hmm. Like that apparently is how we gauge time by how fast we think. And so if you're thinking Mm. so much faster than you're used to, it feels like time isn't moving is how I have understood. And and so there's a lot of that. I feel in, in your book where a couple sentences or a particularly long sentence will make me feel like my brain has sort of taken a a subject or or even like a tiny little object or moment in time or or vision and sort of extrapolated it into like its components but viewing the components as sort of different things it reminds me of reading um i know you haven't mentioned beckett and any of the things i've read about you talking about this book but it reminds me of the unnamed which is the third Mm -hmm. in this trilogy where it's the whole book is just this paragraph of this person who's like in a void yeah um and so it reminds me of that and it kind of reminds me of the book sky saw where like i'm pretty sure two things actually happen in that book at all (laughs) and it's just like pounding these iterative um and tropic sort of statements swallowing and shit or something yeah i like i don't (laughs) even know i i was um i work in radio and uh, I was producing this show on a classic rock station. I was producing the morning show and they're like, Oh, we were talking about books. Hey Joe, what are you reading? I'm like, Oh, I'm reading this book. Sky saw. Oh, cool. What is it about? I'm like, Oh geez. I don't know. You like, have you ever felt uncomfortable? There you go. That's the book. And, and so we killed that bit real quick. Um, uh, but Platts has, has sort of that, that feeling to me where it's like just it almost feels like there's a lot of buildings and they're all connected um Mm -hmm. because i try to think about it knowing that you are an architect but also knowing that i don't know anything about architecture except that brutalism is is a meme um (laughs) So I, I get these flashes of like shots from the movie Neon Demon or mm-hmm. um, 
because I live in Michigan, I've seen lots of images of giant abandoned complexes in Detroit and that with the sort of tropical stucco yeah um, los angeles sort of thing and so i feel like it's almost this strange coastal bourgeois concrete Mm -hmm. city um and i'm getting little snippets of it and I, i really like it um because of that and another thing that i was reading you had talked about is the sort of like waves of attention that you pay mm-hmm. to to what you're reading and i found that really interesting that you expect that and are okay with that as a writer mm-hmm. can you talk about that a little bit um yeah i maybe kind of go back to something you said about the the protraction of time and, and mm-hmm. everything and kind of swirl that into it because that that's really fascinating. I'm, when the podcast is done, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that because I want to <laughs> sure. figure out exactly what you were saying. But um, I I wanted to mention an experience I had in relation to Platts in a uh, writers crit group that I was in briefly in Atlanta, uh, and it was the kind of thing like you'd meet at a coffee shop and. It was a bunch of uh, older white guys, like probably in their 50s. Uh, and this woman, Susan Crawford, who ended up like getting this huge, like HarperCollins book deal about a thriller or something. Um, and But all these white guys treated her like shit. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so thrilled that she got this crazy book deal. Uh, and they also treated me like shit. And one of the the main criticisms that they had was like the writing was too overwrought or like not not every word has to be important and that really pissed me off like um first of all because they just didn't really understand like i don't know the last hundred years of literature <laughs> or, or 120 years like go back to Huismon is kind of my touchstone for when I think modern literature flipped to what it is today um, they, they were just stuck in this kind of like naturalism of the, the mid to late 19th century that a story is a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It follows what people normally think happens in life. There's cause and effect, blah, blah, blah. Um, and what I was interested in way more than a story arc was that the prose itself was the body of the book and that it needed to be treated in a particular way. So um, I think that my interest there was that prose would be super, super precious and probably ridiculously overwrought. And I don't know so much that I was doing on purpose as much as that's what I felt comfortable with. And also because I wasn't really telling a story per se, although there is some narrative characteristics in the book, I was writing really slowly because 
I didn't know what the fuck was happening. Like, it wasn't like I've got this jaunty tale that I've got to, mm-hmm. you know, just extract from my brain before I forget who does what. Uh, so it was basically like having to kind of shake out every word onto the page uh, one at a time, which ends up making it like just consequently is really overwrought. So I think that the effect that it started seeing and the, the characteristics that it developed were kind of, I think, part and parcel with the goal of the book and the, the mechanism of the book, which had, you know, had to do with disembodiment, dissociation, and uh, also a lot to do with like language and thought patterns and schizophrenia, um, where language is actually a really concrete thing. Um, it's not so abstract. And so I tried to write the book uh, in such a way that the the descriptions were not meant to relate anything other than what they were, uh, and you know, there's no there's no analogies in the book at all. There's there's never any kind of perception that language is being used uh, to do something other than describe exactly what's going on which in a way turns it into just a huge metaphor because, you know, it's not, it doesn't get outside of itself and point back at itself so much. So it's always just like this blanket of metaphor lying over everything because it seems so concrete, but it actually, you know, it can't be. And I totally forgot what your question was. That's okay. I realized that my question was fairly meandering, and I liked the response that you gave. Uh, talking about the book and, and disembodiment reminds me of one of the blurbs on the back that is written by a doctor who studies schizophrenia. Yeah. How did that blurb come about? That came about after I published the book. Okay. <laughs> so... So that's a, I have a newer edition. Well, yeah, I mean, the, so Inside the Castle is all print on demand. Oh, uh, so yeah, that's right. I can change any book at any time. Oh. And so, like, I, I've been interested in trying to figure out, and, and someone was talking about with Castle Freak, trying to figure out a way to have it so that every time someone orders a book, like a Castle Freak book, for example, it will be a different book by somehow like writing some code that works with, I don't know, the Lulu print on demand site that it uploads a new re <laughs> recoded version of the book every time it asks for one to be printed. I would love that. So, yeah. I, I don't know how it would be done, but someone was talking about it and I would love for them to figure it out. It's beyond my, it's above my pay grade as they say. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that blurb, so I published Platts in spring of 2014, uh, just, you know, because like actually someone in the writers group I was in here in Lawrence, uh, Kansas, uh, published their own sci-fi book, um, and through some print on demand thing. And I was like, wait, what's this print on demand shit? And he kind of walked me through it and it seemed like really 
pretty user friendly and I have experience with like self publishing and stuff. I did zines and all that in the nineties and I know how to do layouts and all that. So I kind of took it on as a personal project and, um, you know, I didn't have like a vision that inside the castle would turn into something really. It was just, nobody wanted to publish my book. Uh, and it, it was six years old by that point. Uh, so I just felt like this is my opportunity to do this. I don't know anybody at all, like who's a writer, not the people in my writer's group are not writers. <laughs> um, so I figured I could just publish it and have it in a physical form and kind of use it as a calling card or like introduction uh, of myself to people. So. I had it in a physical form and then I started sending it out to people and then started getting the blurbs after I had like a first draft. I mean, it wasn't a draft, it was done, but a first version, first edition published. And so uh, the psychologist uh, who wrote that blurb actually was, she wrote the book that was like my main reference book when working on Platts. So I can't remember how I found her. I guess she's still practicing. Um, if she's still alive, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but this was a few years ago and I wrote her a letter um, and sent it to her office in New York, I think, and put my email address in there so she didn't have to write me a longhand letter back. and. I eventually heard back from her and it was really crazy. Like, I think she was kind of, her curiosity was peaked because I had read her book and had done something with it and uh, she didn't get these kind of requests ever. So that was cool, it was fun for me. And um, I think one of my big interests in Inside the Castle is this whole idea of paratexts, which is like everything about the book that isn't the writing. So the cover art, the format, the size, the font that you use, the kinds of sequencing of title page and attributions, acknowledgements, all that stuff. And blurbs go along with that. Um, and I think people realize that to a certain extent that the blurb can say things about the book. The book doesn't have to say for itself once you get inside. So I think it really helped flats a lot to have that as a paratextual element on the back because the book doesn't talk about schizophrenia or dissociation. It wouldn't use those words ever. Um, but I liked that I was able to <laughs> get that onto the back so it could kind of color people's reading of it. Yeah, it's definitely a useful way to go about it, especially now knowing how you structure it with the the locations and time of day mm -hmm. um it's it's very useful i mean it's it's strange to me uh to read a book like this i don't read a lot of the sort of french experimentalists that seem to uh -huh. be referenced and I don't even know like how to it's very it's very strange to find a book and have graduated college and and look at the book and just not know how to even approach it 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a failing of mine in college to like not seek out even more. But I mean, for me, before college, the only reading I did was genre. It was it was a lot of high fantasy and uh-huh. some science fiction and like that that was really really it until college when i was like ah, i want to find something surreal and and mm-hmm. not even knowing where to start and and branching out from there i definitely would not say it's a failing <laughs> of yours or anything or i mean even a failing of educational system or whatever i mean i i actually don't care if i understand stuff that i read that much like i think that the the thing that i would encourage of people reading books like that is to not feel like there's something that they're supposed to be getting from it mm-hmm. and that if they're not getting that then they're doing it wrong um, because I, I, I like reading things that I don't understand. I like reading words that I don't know what they are and not looking them up because I don't give a fuck what they mm-hmm. mean. I just think they're beautiful looking. I think they sound fantastic. Um, so I think it's kind of like a, just a releasing yourself into the book and letting it be there with you and i think that comes a lot for me from practicing architecture and thinking a lot about the role of buildings in our lives uh, throughout my career and education and stuff because early on in my architectural education i was really interested in like how architecture could control people i mean not like in a fascist kind of way Mm -hmm. but like in a way that was like encoding particular types of experiences into their lives. And at some point I just started to realize that buildings are just there like in the background of people's lives and the architect can and should, you know, dedicate significant resources into enriching the experiences of people through buildings but they can't insist on what people see or experience in those buildings. So like being able to admit to myself that designing a building was both the most uh, important and like meaningful thing that I could do and that I should treat it as such and uh, conversely, that it didn't matter at all to anybody was really, it was really difficult to admit to myself, but it was really liberating at the same time. And I think that is something that I kind of carry over into the book stuff as well, that it's, it's just a, it's just a thing, um, that's part of our world that doesn't really have to mean anything. And it will to you if you just sit there with it, but it's not ever going to be the same thing to everybody. I mean, some things will like, uh, 
basic, you know, uh, pop literature. I don't, I don't even know what to call it. Like something you buy at a grocery store. Yeah. That probably generally is going to be a pretty unilaterally received <laughs> type of thing. But I guess I'm more interested in the fact that books and literature can be way more uh, mutable and uh, applicable to a wide variety of people uh, and then trying to like find the ways to make that happen most effectively. That, that gives me a lot of context for, for how to go about understanding, uh, your, your press and your book, because from all of the the sort of quote unquote experimental uh post formalist anti structuralist sort of writing i.e. those french people that i have not read <laughs> <laughs> where um it seems to me like you're coming at it from a different angle than how I perceive them coming at it, which is mm-hmm. when I was doing Wikipedia searches about the people that are referenced in interviews with you and whatnot. And a lot of like, oh, this has been done and we need to do something completely different so that the form mm-hmm. can flourish. And it doesn't seem to me like that's how you uh, go about doing things like that's not necessarily the the artist intent um but it still kind of looks and feels like this other thing and so i'm trying to like grasp at this other thing that i i haven't really read and don't quite understand and apply it to this new thing Um, Mm. i think part of it too is that i feel like you're fairly unique in that you're an architect who does books uh, it seems like that's um, not necessarily where people come from when they they are something not a writer and then do literary writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, I, I feel like you get people who have done something that is either more um, generally considered artistically creative and then they branch out into it or they do something completely different and i feel like architecture is this thing that is like in the perfect center point of art and design and like engineering and science and stuff and that's because i like don't understand like what an architect even does aside from drawing (laughs) pictures of houses maybe um (laughs) like I, i have no idea how any of it works on any scale uh, so, so like I have all these these pieces of context that I actually don't have any context be- behind um, and so that was a very illuminating answer for me at, at least at, at least in this moment um, but well, I think that your your uh, your description of architecture is accurate okay I mean yeah that's that's what the practice of architecture is uh, it's like a nexus of a lot of different things. And usually, <clears throat> yeah, the job of the architect is to conceive of the form of the building and how it's going to work, how it's going to manifest itself 
but unlike a like fountainhead scenario that uh that conception is really just a mediation of a lot of different forces so it's the forces of a client just forces of economy forces of the site that the building's going to be in forces of necessity forces of practicality which is where the engineering aspect comes into it cost i mean it's like it's it's a nexus of so many different things that it's kind of baffling sometimes that the architect is able to like that there are different buildings in the world yeah. <laughs> because it seems like everything would just result in kind of the same outcome which actually in the United States kind of does these days uh, so I guess I'm kind of wrong there but yeah it's it's really like a center point for a lot of different things. But I would say like the, I guess the education that I got in architecture was more on, less on the practical and business end of things and more on the conceptual end of things. Um, partly based on where I went to school, but also partly because in the nineties, um, architecture, I think, was thought of uh, as a lot more of a philosophical pursuit in school, at least. Hmm. Uh, I mean, some of the, the key texts of my time in school were like Peter Eisenman, who was an architect, uh, writing about Deleuze and deconstructionism. And I mean, people think of deconstruction and architecture as like this just super reductive thing of like it looks like the building is being deconstructed like when you hear a chef say this is a deconstructed ham sandwich mm -hmm. you make it yourself like that's not what deconstruction is um so peter eisenman was i think he had like a lot of writing and dialogues with deleuze about what it meant in relation to architecture uh there was another writer uh educator named Jennifer Bloomer who wrote this book about Piranese and James Joyce and Piranese was like this Italian draftsman uh, who drew all these fantastical spaces and structures um, I mean even Rem Koolhaas who's still practicing and pretty hot shit like his book that came out small medium large extra large when I was in school was very literary and so I think that contrary to what I see in architectural education today and practice today, I think the 90s were much more heady and kind of overlapped more with uh, postmodern uh, philosophy and thinking. So there, I think there's a lot more literateness in architecture of the time period that I came out of. So it kind of makes a bit of sense to me that it was attractive. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I, I'm remembering I took a, uh, a graphic design class back in high school a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And there was a Russian designer who designed some like basically a horizontal uh, skyscraper, he called it. And I don't mm -hmm. think it ever got made. I forget his name. It's like Lidzitsky or something. Yeah, Elisitsky. That could be it. Yeah, that's him. Uh, 
and uh yeah he did a lot of um soviet um strange um uh propaganda posters as well yeah which, yeah that's him which is what i was drawn to at the time um that's fascinating i i'm i'm like lost now because i'm i'm also on the the eisenman architects website and i'm seeing things that are making my brain hurt <laughs> um it's like a skyscraper that looks like a hashtag um so we're gonna oh yeah that was a uh that was his entry for the new world trade center yeah like after the uh after september 11th there was mm -hmm. a competition that there were like five different groups of architects uh and daniel leapskin won and i mean if you look at daniel leapskin's design for that and what they built it's unbelievable like his his design looked like I mean, it looked like his work, which is really individualistic and um, kind of strange formally. And the thing they built is just dog shit. Mm. What is that like to walk around a city and have an opinion on what all the buildings around you are? Does that uh, get <laughs> overwhelming? No, uh, because like I said, uh, people don't really, they're not aware of that. And I include myself in that. Um, I mean, something will, will jog me loose uh, from my stupor distraction and I'll notice it and think, oh, that's cool. Usually it's like the back of a gas station or something hmm. I find really fascinating or a motel, I love motels. Um, but no, I, I'm pretty, in general, pretty tuned out. Um, I did this thing with students a few years ago where I took them to my favorite building here in Lawrence, which is an old theater. It was like part of the vaudeville circuit at the turn of the 20th century, 19th century. Uh, that's now like a movie theater and music venue. And it's really like this convoluted knot of spaces all folded up into this old building and so I took them there with the, what you call it, like the, the facilities manager for the building, and he gave us a tour. Um, and so these are architecture students that I took there to specifically look at and spend time in this building and explore with the guy who runs it. And we had a tour that was like two hours long, went like all over in the basement, the attic, on the roof, all through these back passageways and stuff. And when we got out, I said to the students, okay, now I want you to go home and draw the floor plan of the building. <laughs> and they, they could not have been more fucked up and wrong. Like, and so it was really interesting to me. These are architect -y type people who had dedicated time in their day to go look at a building and they could not apprehend what had been going on around them. And I feel like that's really indicative of, I mean, my relationship to buildings as well. But if you think about that, these were architecture type people, imagine what like Joe Sixpack is thinking in a building, probably not about like how far apart the columns are or like, you know, 
what material the walls are or anything uh, that we have to focus on as architects and you know fuss over and think it's the most important thing in the world it just kind of sloughs off of people so no i don't i don't feel like i get super overwhelmed although my wife would probably disagree <laughs> she <laughs> forced her to stop so i can take a picture of like a doorway or something but hmm. so it's, it's, it seems like a more micro level thing i mean i guess that makes sense because you're a person-sized person walking around building sized <laughs> buildings yeah exactly well uh is there anything else you wanted to bring up or anything you wanted to bring up kind of open well, the let floor me, to you let me ask you mm -hmm. your 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 handle is noisemaker mm -hmm. what do you do you make noise i do i i have what a noise, noise i have a noise music project um I, uh, it's called Ring of Roses. Um, I have a, oh, I forget the brand and it's packed up because I moved six months ago and haven't unpacked anything. <laughs> um, but it's essentially six oscillators. Um, okay. uh, one is low frequency. Um, so it just kind of thumps and, and interrupts. Um, and I have a smattering of guitar pedals of different kinds because that's really easy to just say hey buy me guitar pedals family who do doesn't know anything about music for, for christmas <laughs> awesome. and birthdays and stuff um uh -huh. and then i bought a 16 channel um mackie mixer with um sort of a bank of effects within it mm -hmm. and so it's 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 sort of droney and okay. uh but there's there is like a harsh noise track on it or a harsh noise wall track that that is very just like i created a sound pattern that i liked and let it go for 19 uh -huh. minutes um and then there's <laughs> other stuff that's more performative i used to stream uh -huh. on twitch and i would i made a a playlist of very 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 poppy music and mm -hmm. uh like young thug style type rap music and I mm -hmm. put those in a playlist and put that into the mixer and just kind of let that go while I was twisting my knobs and stuff. And I called it uh -huh. ruining songs. <laughs> uh, so, so that's the sort of thing I, I do with that's awesome. some noise. Um, I'll have to look into that. It's on my website, noisemakerjoe.com. I think if you click on the link that says music, I should probably make sure that that's true. <laughs> yeah, you, you got some time before you put this up, I guess. Yeah. Um, the other thing, it's it's sort of like a, like a triple meaning in that I also work in radio, so I make mm -hmm. noise there and, and with the podcasting. and It's also sort of like a, a judgment value as well. Oh, like okay. is noise in a pejorative way or? I think so. That's awesome. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think in a pejorative way. Actually, the music goes to joebalecki.bandcamp.com, which has more um, sort of uh, uh, experimental, um, like concrete sort of stuff, where I did field okay. recordings and, and butchered them later with lots of um, VST reverb and stuff. I did that for, um, for an audio class. So I have just gotten really into Bandcamp, and I love it. It's so 
so awesome. Like I basically since the beginning of the summer, I've just been listening to almost only super Cro-Magnon slam death metal mm. on Bandcamp. That's a good place just to find it. Such fucking garbage. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's so cool because it's just like there's a new like caveman slam album coming out like every six hours yeah on Bandcamp. so yeah i love it i i've, I've always had the since i discovered Bandcamp, had the desire to do a podcast where i just find something crazy on Bandcamp <laughs> and just walk through it with another person like oh so track, track number six is four seconds long and I can't describe what I heard but I think it gave me nightmares it'd be like mystery science theater yeah Bandcamp exactly there, there was one I found where a guy just did like really shitty karaoke covers of 80s songs but oh, replaced God. replaced um, every every like subject in the sentence with my dick so it's just like everybody my dick tonight oh my god it's like why why does this exist i I wish i wish there was i wish writing or i wish reading took less time so that we could have something like that for writing where it was just a site of i mean i guess like amazon.com or various lit mags but something even more just like why would you spend six hours writing this to put it in the internet when it's it's yeah. very obviously like you've you've put no care into it. But there's also something really liberating about that. Like it levels the medium. You know? Yeah. Well, if you want to see some of that stuff, you should start a journal or a press or something, because you you'll get it sent to you. Probably that's, a journal that's more true. so. Yeah. Yeah. From what I've heard. Uh, so I'm going to read a piece of writing from the current project that I'm working on, which is a book called Massive. Uh, and this little piece is called Eating Nadia's Pig. It is about uh, one of the people in the book uh, who has a pet pig and her landlord forces her to serve it to him for dinner. I'm of a perception and orientation that these gallant beasts are deserving of our gratitude, but there's nothing remaining of them for honoring. A few teeth, perhaps, even those are useful in baby rattles. I have the consideration of interment of the slaughtering knives, although that is wasteful, and I have the intuition that it's not desirable to the beast. So I'm simply spading over the dirt behind the home with a small marker stating the day of the cadaver's maximum valuation. Recollection of slaughter day is always difficult and quite earnestly irrelevant. On the table in the dining nook of the kitchen is a candelabra with golden brown tapers that otherwise is devoid of bouquets and decoration. No condiment vessels, no napkins in tasteful arrangement no napkins, no radishes, only the blankness of thick gray cheese from precipitating vaporization of cooking oil on the boarding house table, softening in the stifling warmth. Gold and minium two-tone damask is lavishly festooning ornate plaster cast brackets, 
spray paintingly antique in old gold as flaking flakes are limply tenuous from the volutes and the congealing clogging lard sludge and dust fur. Adipose saturation of the fabric is drawing particulate and fibrous suspension from the stagnant air, casting the pleats with waxen immobility, framing the operable picture window, looking out over the derelict garden below with pathways of gold acetate confetti and the little pond in the middle of the lawn with shoreline of pyrite nuggets and filled with gold plastic sequins floating on sepia. The ordinary shrubs at the fence line behind neighboring dwellings beyond the supersession of ginkgo shrubs and flower pots, swarmingly spangly in the preservation of golden desiccation of fluttering papery foliage clicking into the clattering and clanging of the viands and service a la russe on gold circumference tableware. The woman in traditional garb Jugular is pulsating and sweaty, gazing out the large window to the garden and beyond to finer homes through the thin trees as hurrying about the stifling kitchen silently, thunking her forehead on cookware, hanging from racks, hanging from the ceiling as carrying the first course on gold leaf chargers toward the empty table where the master of the house is sitting, is staring at his sullen tenant. Her hair patchy and face sinking into its orbitals. And the meal is commencing, and the meal is coming only to his position in the table, and from the right is coming the course of oral amusements. A textual grand tour of mouth treats is consisting of cold items, glistening head cheese, spleen worst, thin slice of cold tongue with panzanella soggingly vinaigretti, a timbal of eggy sawdust, and luncheon tongue reconstitution of mechanical tongue separation. On soup plates containing ice shavings are melting into the meat fluids and vinegar soaking through a small interceding scrap of cloth. Garnishment is a pithy wedge of exceptionally obscure Catholic limon and tepid servings, the cubic solidification of blood fryingly crispy, fuet, Julienne of ear cracklings with ramekins of spicy mustard, unadorningly heaping on chargers, and sweaty banmarie servings, spare ribs with hedge apple and sauerkraut, ribs and paprika and tea sauce with sour cream and mushrooms and taproot. In long boats of congealing sauciness are leaving from the left and from the right is coming the steaming soup course, bathingly titillating the palate and gum line and far-reaching musculature of the jaw as far as the temple and hairline. A boiling preparation of porcine snout and trachea with turmeric root in a crock with whole potatoes. Stewy vinegar preparation of porcine organs with saturation of particle board chaff. Soup of chunklets of tripe with bell peppers and onions and cabbage. Heart goulash with nutmeg and liver dumplings steeping in the bondage of a napkin and garnishing with cork cheese and croutons and ham caramel. A terrain of trotter porridge with lemon and cinnamon on a charger with concentric arrayals of hot green and yellow peppers and fermentitious cucumbers and fresh black radishes and savory lard truffles and fresh nettles and dandelion, luxuriously bilious sour tripe soup. 
are leaving from the left and from the right is coming the hot statement course with organ meat and connective tissue and skeletal connections in a series of rectangular glass bain-marie on trivets beating up with condensation, short shank, hind shank, steamship leg, porcine osobuco with rosemary, a pork bowel curingly tough and spicy with chilies and paprika and thyme and fennel seed, cubes of blood coagulation in a preparation with onion and tomato sauce, chitlins and sour cream, braising the kidneys for cyandry, stuffing of abdominal membranes for drob, are leaving from the left, and from the right is coming the main course with meat cuts on vermeil platters with a restraint for inspection of the butchery, most purely showcasing the simplicity of the meal's central ingredient, pork blade steaks with smoky ketchup, ham, pork loin with lardons and rye croutons, picnic shoulder, tenderloin, leg sirloin, are leaving from the left and from the right are coming the intercourse removal introductions of saucy meat and vegetables or preparations whose conceptualization is dependent on the Jew lingering in empty halves of the main course platters, pork kebabs with hedge apple and onion, kidneys and onions pan fryingly soaking in baldic oyster sauce, a boiling preparation of porcine maw full of barley and sawdust and nettles and garlicky collagen and bacon is fryingly indulgent with caramelization on bedding of yogurt stewy leafy fragments. The casting of a carrot and Brussels sprout and mashy potato trifle inside a pork heart. Stewy lungs with plum dumplings. Savory ducks of sage and black pepper seasoning porcine heart and liver mincingly frying in a sack of its own epiplume. It's call. It's great momentum. It's omentum majus on a bed of fiddleheads, ear and bean broth, scrapple, are leaving from the left. The picture window is sliding a jar full of the fur filtration of neighboring neighborhood noises. The picture window is sliding, sealing against its jam, and from the right is coming fresh cutlery with the respite and repose of the toddy and sorbet course, a vermeil goblet of fresh blood and mulling spice mix with frothy bacon bits, a glass sundae cup of dandelion honey granita melting into sweet sow colostrum is leaving from the left, and from the right is coming the burdensome roast course, is playing against the relief of the sorbet with wads of meat and organs in deep hot pans standing above the table in vermeil casserole cradles. Sedimentary rashers of bacon barding a ray roast with rosemary and bay, immersions frying a foreshank and a crispy delicacy on a pike and radiating sheaves of crispy pigskin, porcine liver with onions, grilling kidney with carrot and peas, black pudding of spallings of particle board and porcine blood in its own intestine is leaving from the left and from the right is coming the de-escalating refreshment of the salad course. Palate cleansing with unctuous yellow marrow custard. Black truffle shavings over dandelion greens. Celery and baconase is leaving from the left. And from the right is coming the palate titillation and mild textural composition of the cold dishes. 
somewhat more tepid in their passage through the sweltering kitchen nook, sweating the same greasy perspiration as the gourmand at his table, his butter knife into tongue in flavorless aspic with mushrooms. Pifty of legs and ears and garlic juice, garnishing a pate of sow liver and lard and anchovies on rye toast points with fermentitious beetroot and cucumber and spicy mustard, and lolling the orbs of two eyes from a gel mold on the prow of his tongue, gazing across the table at his dinner guest through the removal of all dishes and all accoutrements from the table, where all that is abiding is the gray cataract of griminess occluding the wood grain. And upon this dull surface is the arrayal of the sweet course, bacon and lard truffles, peaches and candy, pork tongue and chartreuse jelly, sweet lard truffles, honey roasting of pork fat back tart, soft warm apple roasting in a sow cranium with myrrh and cinnamon sticks in sweet whey. And from the right is coming an introduction of a distribution of cheeses in the vacant spaces of the sweet trays. Pork cheese force meat, a platter of wild strawberries and fig desiccation with bacon stuffing and porcine whey cheese. The tenant is silently weeping. The landlord is lollingly comatose with sausage digits and his countenance lying sideways on a broad white collar draping his awful body. The oiliness and spiciness of the bespoke meal permeates the room, gurgling, snoring through lard throat. The difficulty in the acquisition of all these offals is generally industrial dedication to cat food. And that's the show. If you liked what you heard, you can follow John on Twitter. It's at Treffreyesque. That's T-R-E-F-R-Y-E-S-Q-U-E. Or look in the show notes. It's there as well. jhtreffrey.org is where you can find a list of his writings. And insidethecastle.org is where you can find Inside the Castle information about Castle Freak. And you can throw money at him and the people he has published. Until next time, write more and write better.